The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. Welcome to uh, Acts Part 3. And um, let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for speaking to us through your word. And we just thank you for giving us uh, insight and illumination to what happened in the early church. We thank you, Lord, for... uh, being inspired to then carry out that work in our church today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, uh, picking up um, on where we've been before, we finished Acts chapter 12. Uh, Last week, we're now on Acts chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles and you want to open up to Acts chapter 13, we're going to walk through verse by verse the entire uh, passage. Uh, We've been tracking since the beginning uh, the activity of the Holy Spirit in uh, birthing the church and spreading the gospel message of Jesus Christ. First, of course, to Jerusalem. Then, as Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said to Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. Uh, And the message is about Jesus, about his life, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, uh, and the fact that he wants to win the world. So um, we're going to pick up that. Uh, We are at this uh, middle place in the story of Acts. Uh, We've seen the mission to Jerusalem. We've seen the ministry to Judea. Now we're seeing the ministry to Samaria. And now we're going to see the ministry uh, to the rest of the the empire. And we're going to be looking especially today at the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. So part three is picking up that part of the story where now, instead of Peter and, and, and we saw something about Philip and Simon or, or Stephen, but instead of Peter being the main character, we're transitioning now for Paul becoming the main character in the second half of the book of Acts. So let's take a look at this. Uh, and um, you've got your handouts for those of you here in the room. And uh, in part three of our study of the book of Acts, we'll see the missionary work of Paul and Barnabas authenticated by the Holy Spirit. So if you want to fill your blanks in, it's by the Holy Spirit, supported by the church in Antioch, characterized by geographic movement uh, that actually penetrates uh, all the different social strata of the society, from poor to rich. Uh, And it focuses on proclaiming the word of God about Jesus Christ. Uh, The diagram in the notes is showing that the book of Acts, you know, uh, what it looks like, what it covers. Uh, We've got uh, the introduction of the church being birthed, the growth of the church, the persecution of the church, the expansion of the church in the first 12 chapters where we see the emphasis on Peter, Stephen and Philip. We see it's to the Jews and Judeans and Sumerians. And it's uh, in terms of a time period that we've already taken a look at, we're covering now roughly uh, 14 to 16 years. Uh, So we're now standing around 48 AD um, as we begin to turn the page to Acts chapter 13. And uh, we're looking at now the ministry of Paul Uh, the ministry to Gentiles. I mean, still reaching out to Jews, uh, but uh, actually there's a great receptivity among the Gentiles, and it's now going outward. And uh, this will be the first major missionary journey uh, recorded in the gospel or or in the Bible. So let's take a look at our um, first passage. We'll read verses 1 to 3 in chapter 13 of the book of Acts. So please come and... 
So passage, um, chapters, Act, uh, Acts 13, 1 to 3. Now there were in the church um, at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Mananin, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So we're now looking at uh, 15 to 16 years into the unfolding story of the church. And by now, leaders are being distinguished uh, by their spiritual gifts as they've been identified. And so we see uh, that um, there were prophets and teachers, uh, two distinct roles, uh, and among them were Barnabas and Saul. So if you want to fill in that blank, prophets and teachers. Uh, and uh, we would say that Barnabas fits that prophetic ministry role. Saul, probably, based on all the writings we have from him, he would really slot into that teacher's uh, role. There were among them uh, at this um, gathering in Antioch, um, also besides Barnabas and Saul, Simeon. And um, it says, uh, who is called Niger. So we're talking probably about, and that means black, we're talking about probably an African, uh, North African, a member of the church who has come, uh, got saved, um, and has now moved on mission to Antioch. <clears throat> also from North Africa, from Libya, uh, from Cyrene, uh, which is where uh, Cyrene is in modern-day Libya, is Lucius. So we've got a multi-ethnic group of people that are now um, probably focused on reaching not just uh, Hebrew Jews, and, uh, but they're now probably focused on reaching Gentiles in the city of Antioch. And then we also have Manin, who had grown up with Herod Antipas, uh, king of Judea. So we're looking at somebody of a higher status and social prestige that's also part of this leadership team. So we've got a broad um, social group here and um, a diversity of leadership, uh, but they're united in Christ. Uh, they're united in the worship of the risen Savior. So uh, Christian prophets would have uh, ministered by ways of exhortation, instruction, correction, encouragement, confirmation. You know, it's like, so you sense the Lord saying this to you, you're sensing the Lord saying this to you, and uh, says the Lord, you, you know, there's a confirmation here. Or it could even be at, at times a future telling event. And in this case, uh, there is this launching of mission and ministry, and it's a prophetic um, a word that helps uh, crystallize their decision to, yes, it's time to go and, and, and do uh, ministry. So um, in our our Outline, as the church is worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit makes it clear to all present that Barnabas and Saul were to be sent out on mission. And, um, and so they, they lay hands on them uh, and, and pray for them um, to do so. Um, let me see here. The, the direction is accepted and uh, endorsed by church leadership in Antioch. And after fasting and praying, again, with the hands laid upon them, they were commissioned uh, they commissioned the pair and sent them off. So that goes in your blank as well. Uh, we do have a map here. It gives you an example of uh, where they're starting from in northern Syria at Antioch. And now they're going to um, go to the port city of Seleucia, uh, travel by, um, by ship to Cyprus, to eastern Cyprus, to Salamis, 
walk by land to Paphos, uh, the capital, and then from there, a time of ministry, they're going to sail across north uh, Mediterranean Sea to uh, land near Attilia to Perga and move to Pisidian Antioch. So that's the uh, territory we're going to cover as we look at Acts chapter 13. Okay, let's start reading in chapter 13. Turn your Bibles uh, to verse 4. And uh, we'll go through to verse 12. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Eliamas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed, and when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So we want to note next that Luke continues his emphasis on, and we can fill in the blank here, the divine direction of the Holy Spirit. They were sent by the Holy Spirit, verse 4 says. So this is really the acts of the Holy Spirit amongst the believing community. Uh, the missionary duel uh, of Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas and Saul, make Cyprus their first port of call. And, you know, as we have read already in Acts chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, that there was at least 12 nations that uh, they heard the, um, this, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, the speaking of tongues, a huge crowd gathers, and there's people hearing them in their own languages. And we have a list of 12 nationalities that hear in their own language the proclamation about the gospel and about Jesus and uh, the glorification of God. And, 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 and we have uh, some of those uh, listed here. Cyprus, there was people from Cyprus. Cyrene, there was people from Cyrene. Probably people from the Nile Delta and uh, Alexandria area. There's people from uh, northern Syria, people from uh, Turkey and people from Mesopotamia and people from Rome and Greece and, uh, and other locations. And so you've got... Um, the gospel seated, and those people stick around for a while because 3,000 of them got saved, so the scriptures tell us. They're disciples, and they go back and set up uh, Christian-believing communities in their Jewish um, communities from whence they've come. Now, we're reaching not just the Jews in Jewish synagogues, uh, but that's the place to start. But now we're seeing this spread to reach out to Gentiles. So the missionary duo makes Cyprus their first call. This, surprisingly enough, uh, if you didn't know, is the home of Barnabas. So here's Barnabas on the team saying, hey, why don't we go over to Cyprus 
the Holy Spirit is like, we already have a few churches in Cyprus. We already got some believers in Cyprus. Let's go to Cyprus and let's expand the mission evangelistically and let's see what God can do there. So this is where they go and this is definitely the plan of the Holy Spirit. And they take about 12 to 18 months to tr- uh, for this entire trip uh, including Cyprus and beyond, and they're close to about a thousand kilometers. Uh, they travel to the prominent port city of Seleucia, which is the home base of the Imperial fleet, get their tickets. And so the, the, the church in Antioch is going to be paying probably for the tickets that they need and the funds that are necessary for such a mission to take place and the core group that is going. Uh, they set sail to Cyprus. And so they've landed at Salamis, which is a major city on the eastern side, and it has a synagogue. And... Um, the Jewish population has already accepted the Old Testament scriptures as God's word. And so it's a natural place for them to start. Perhaps Barnabas actually has some contacts uh, in Salamis. John Mark is with them, serving with them, part of the team. And uh, they make contact with the Jewish community first, which becomes a pattern. So if you want to fill in your blank, contact with the Jewish community first became a pattern for missionary activity uh, in, in the early church. Um, so then their ministry, and we don't hear anything about the response. Um, they then move uh, by land uh, till they get to the actual capital of Cyprus on, in the west, Paphos. Yeah, to do some more ministry there. It's a very Romanized city. And this is where they encounter a magician and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, also Elimas, which means magician or, or wizard. Um, the magicians of the day uh, used demon-assisted methods. They may not have known it, but that's exactly what they were tapping into in their pursuit of the occult to bring about healings or pronounced blessings or curses, to foretell the future, uh, to read the tea leaves, as it were, the signs of astrology, the stars, uh, and to try to be, if they could, uh, an influential um, supposed advisor uh, for political leaders. And this is exactly the case here. And we see an example of syncretism of Jewish and uh, of uh, backslidden Jewish uh, faith, uh, folk, and pagan religion, all mixed together. And we see this in the world today, where we go to different places where they have maybe a, a, a Christian faith from missionaries of hundreds of years ago, but the, uh, the local tribal uh, religions are still intermixed with it. We see this in Indonesia, uh, folk religions and Islam mixed together. It's not really what Islam is. It's, not really, it's, it's a syncretistic thing that has taken place where we see that here. So Elamas has the ear of Sergius Paulus, the highest ranking Roman official in the region, governor of a senatorial province that doesn't need a Roman legion. And when Barnabas and Saul arrive, the proconsul is interested. He's open. He wants to hear what they have to say. He's described as an intelligent man, which implies an ability to assess matters, make appropriate decisions. In fact, Luke is casting him as a good Roman leader. Um, he takes the initiative to reach out to Barnabas and Saul. He wants to hear what they have to say. He welcomes them and invites them. Eliamus, this uh, court advisor, um, um, is jealous to guard his cozy relationship with the proconsul, and he, so he sets out to oppose the missionaries. Now, this is where in our text uh, we see um, Saul, his Hebrew name, becoming known as Paul, his Greek or Roman 
name for the rest of the book of Acts. And this, I think, signifies uh, not only that there's a Gentile mission happening here, and so he's using his Greek and Roman name from this point on. In fact, it's interesting, uh, the person he's uh, communicating with has a similar name, Sergius Paulus. Uh, so, hey, Sergius Paulus, my name is Paulus too. I can see that happening. But anyway, here he is now. But this also signifies the rising of Paul in um, prominence, even above Barnabas. So if you're looking at your notes, uh, uh, signifying the rising of Paul in prominence above Barnabas. He's, he's not intentionally trying to surpass or to surplant Barnabas. Barnabas is a great man of God, a prophetic guy who's gone out, found Saul, has... Uh, He's, he's recommended Saul, he's commended Saul, he's protected Saul, he's nurtured Saul, he's uh, been a reference for Saul uh, in Jerusalem and in other locations. And uh, so he has, he has uh, wants to, he's a son of encouragement, he wants to see Saul raised up to be who God's called him to be. And one of those things that he's called to be is the apostle to the Gentiles. And now that's actually happening. Uh, Paul is coming into his own. Barnabas sees it, and I think there's, there's no conflict here. Uh, Barnabas has uh, been used by Jesus and by the Holy Spirit to raise up Saul in a prominent uh, position of leadership as a missionary apostle. Now, the Holy Spirit gives Paul spiritual discernment, uh, which you can fill in the blank there, um, at, in the moment to identify the demonic source of Eliamus' opposition. And he calls the magician out. I love this passage in, in the scripture where it says that uh, um, in verse 9, Saul, who's also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. It's like he was staring into his soul. He was seeing and discerning uh, that he wasn't just seeing in the natural. He was seeing in the spiritual what was behind this man. He was discerning uh, what uh, was going on in the demonic source of Eliamus' opposition. He calls him out, and, uh, and he accuses him of being a manipulator, full of all kinds of deceit and fraud in league with the devil. And uh, this is what uh, we could call a power in Counter. Paul prophesies judgment, God's judgment on him, and Elimus becomes temporarily blind. And this is interesting because it is an echo of Paul's own experience in Acts chapter 9, where Paul was an opponent uh, of Jesus, and he struck with blindness, knocked off the horse on his way to Damascus to persecute the church. And, and here, um, the same judgment happens uh, to somebody who's a uh, very hostile as well. So I think that's kind of interesting. But there is a reality of spiritual warfare that's recurrent uh, in the book of Acts and really in the entire book of the Bible, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, you're going to see that tension. Uh, also, there's parallels here with Paul and Peter uh, in that uh, Peter also experienced a judgment miracle that needed to take place or that the Holy Spirit took uh, lead in in Acts chapter 5 when people lied about their generosity and, and uh, to the Holy Spirit and they were struck. Um, Peter here also, um, when he, he went to Samaria uh, to back up Philip's ministry in Samaria, uh, meets up with Simon the magician and, and he's got a bit of a, a problem. Uh, you know, he wants the power and, and so Peter has to um, confront uh, Simon uh, Magnus, uh, the uh, magician in, in, in Samaria. And so uh, Luke is pointing out that the things Peter has done, Paul is now doing as well. And the Holy Spirit is, is equating Paul and Peter with the same kind of apostolic authority, because obviously Paul's not one of the 12, but uh, now we're seeing a lot of things that, that help underscore the fact that Paul has 
a um, God-given ministry and uh, is helping his audience to say, yes, that's true. The proconsul certainly is amazed and impressed by the miracle. and He's grossed with the teachings of the gospel. He believes in Jesus. And we see there, here that there are two types of people. There are those that are closed and hostile uh, to the gospel and those that are open and welcoming. And sometimes it's not who you expect. You'd think the Jewish background guy would be more open and this Roman power governor guy would be more closed, but it was exactly the opposite in this case. So what are we learning so far in our study of Acts chapter 13? We're learning that missionary work is focused on proclamation of God's word centered in Jesus Christ. Uh, we're learning that missionary work is authenticated and led and inspired and guided by the Holy Spirit and follows up with some signs and wonders in this case, with the gifts of, in operation. We're learning that missionary work involves confrontation with forces of evil and the representatives. And again, this is nothing new. It's happened, uh, and it's still happening to this day. There is a spiritual world, and there is a conflict uh, behind the scenes. Uh, missionary work is also supported by the local church. We're, we, uh, our Antioch uh, has blessed this. They've laid hands on them. They've sent them out. They've discerned together. They're supporting it. And somebody's got to buy the tickets for the ship. And somebody's got to pay for the food and uh, lodging. And so uh, there is an initial investment uh, that's taken place. And Antioch is known as uh, uh, having that role. And then finally, missionary work is characterized by geographical movement. And we're seeing a movement, an initial movement from Syria to Cyprus. And we're going to see a lot more as we go to our next text. So let's take a look at uh, Acts chapter 13, and um, we'll read 13 to 16, and we're going to set up our, our next uh, area of geographical movement and ministry. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioned with his hands and said, and we'll take a look at that speech in a minute, but let's just unpack what we've just read in this paragraph. The next stop for Paul and his companions, and note, it's not Barnabas and Saul, now it's Paul and his companions. So there's a shift of emphasis here. Uh, as uh, previously. The next stop is actually... Pisidian Antioch. It's the civil and military center and the Roman colony in Galatia. And uh, it has evidence of connections through inscriptions with Sergius Paulus's family. So it's plausible that Sergius Paulus, before he became governor of Cyprus, had a position in this capital in Galatia. And that, in fact, some of his family is still there. I would, I don't know, it's, it's a bit of a, a leap of faith, but maybe he said to Paul and Barnabas, hey, go on over to Antioch Pisidian. That's where I was. I got some family there. Let me write a letter of reference so that you could go. Uh, and it's just a, a hypothesis, but it's, pl it's plausible. So anyway, there they are. They travel 280 kilometers by sea and land into southern Turkey, into the province of Galatia. And um, this is the point where John Mark makes a decision to return to Jerusalem. Uh, we don't know why, uh, but uh, Mark think, John Mark thinks it's a good idea. We learn that Paul doesn't think it's a good idea. And I would, surprise, I would say that I think Paul wanted John Mark present because he was one of those guys that may have seen Jesus alive as a young man, as a, young, as a boy. And uh, so I think he really valued having somebody who saw Jesus alive in his team. Uh, for whatever reasons we don't know, uh, John 
uh, Mark really felt uh, convinced that he had to return. Now, um, moving into Antioch and Pisidia, uh, Josephus, the historian, writes that there are about 2,000 Jewish families that live in this area. Uh, according to form, uh, Paul and his team show up first, not at the Roman amphitheater, <laughs> not in the marketplace. He shows up first in the synagogue on a Sabbath to meet with Jews and with Gentiles gathered there. And what kind of Gentiles will be gathered at a Jewish synagogue? Well, there'll be two types. One, those that have converted to Judaism, we call proselytes. And two, those that are God-fearers, those that have not yet converted, but they're interested. They've been attracted by the monotheism of God, uh, one God, one great God. And they're not that impressed now with uh, the paganism and the polytheism of many gods that are really got crazy backstories uh, that really sound like um, uh, human beings on, 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 on drugs or steroids or something. Um, so they are uh, drawn to the Jewish teaching about one God. But they're also drawn to the Jewish morality codes. And they think there's, that's a better way of living. And uh, so that attracts them. But they haven't, um, God-fearers haven't actually converted uh, fully and become full measure, members of the, of the synagogue because they're a little hesitant about some of the extra rules that Judaism was uh, mandating such as circumcision for men and uh, the food and dietary laws were a little bit strict and they might have just said you know what we really like it we're just thank you for welcoming us we'll just hang on the on the outskirts of it um, so as it's a great strategy for Paul to find himself in these Jewish synagogues not only ministering to his uh, Jewish brethren but also uh, having a witness to uh, Gentiles that are there as visiting teachers the synagogue leadership invites them to come and give a word of encouragement. Now, a little bit of uh, background in terms of uh, perhaps a typical synagogue service. You'd have a, a Shema uh, they would start off with. Uh, that would be normal. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength. Uh, there'd be a prayer by a leader of the synagogue. There would be a reading from the books of Moses, the Torah. There would be a reading from the prophets. Uh, there would be a priestly blessing that's given, and then there would be an exposition. And it would be at this point that the leader of the synagogue could identify a prominent guest that he trusts and says, hey, brother, you've traveled into our area. I, I see you, you know, and for Paul's case, he could have mentioned, hey, I studied under Gamaliel, blah, blah, blah. And so he says, hey, come, do you have something to say to us? And so this is now Paul rising uh, and starting to address the gathering. And this is something similar that happened to Jesus uh, in Luke 4 when he was invited in Nazareth to speak uh, uh, in the synagogue service at about this same time in the agenda of the service. So here in verse 16, we'll uh, launch into the message or a summary of the message that Luke writes that Paul gave uh, here in the synagogue. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And all this took about 40, 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart 
who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as promised. And before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no. But behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. So Paul begins with a lightning-fast tour through history of Israel, from the Exodus to King David, and with the theme of God's merciful provision for his people. 450 years would include the captivity, the wandering, and the conquest of the Promised Land. And the history includes some highs and some lows in their relationship with God, including, well, the lows of the 40 years in the wilderness because of their sin, uh, and, and maybe the, the period of King Saul and his, you know, everybody knew how that turned out. Uh, but it, um, it, it, it peaks with, with King David. So Paul starts by affirming that God sovereignly chose Israel, and through the years he cared for, nurtured them, he guarded them, he guided them, he gave them the promised land, he fulfilled that promise. But there's another promise yet to be fulfilled. And that's the point that Paul is making. David makes the point that Paul, I mean, Paul makes the point that David uniquely plays a role in unfolding uh, the next step in the redemptive purposes of God. Now, there's an allusion to, well, really, there's a removal of King Saul, indicating that there, there needs to be open to a change in, in, for the better for a new leader. And so, as Saul was removed and David came into prominence, there's still this promise that the seed of David, a son of David, would become this messianic king. And so there's yet another really big transition taking place. And ta-da, that person is Jesus. Uh, now, a little bit more about David, because David is their hero. Not only was David a man after God's own heart, as 1 Samuel 13, 14 says, uh, he was a type of the coming king. He was the one to whom God made a promise that his descendant, one of his, a son of David, would become uh, a Lord uh, who would rule his people according to God's will. So Paul's linking Jesus with Israel's history as the fulfillment of God's promises. And so that's one um, witness. Uh, but then he says, it's not just David who witnesses that I have a son who's coming. Uh, it's John the Baptist who makes it even clearer uh, that this one is Jesus Christ. Uh, and so David is a popular person. John the Baptist is a popular person in these Jewish communities. And Paul is making sure he's touching on those aspects to provide the platform for introducing Jesus to them. And, uh, and so that's, that's pretty powerful. So let's then take a look at how he um, preaches the gospel uh, in a Jewish synagogue situation. Um, it'll be different than how he would preach the gospel, let's say, in Athens in Acts 17 uh, to a very Gentile audience. And so that's very interesting as well. So let's pick it up. Verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found him in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. 
And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring to you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, he, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And as for the fact that he was raised from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses." Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Well, that's interesting preaching. Strong. In this extended passage, Paul picks up Jesus' story and portrays him as the Messiah promised by the Old Testament scriptures. That's the next um, blank to fill in the Messiah promised by the Old Testament scriptures. You're seeing him quote Psalms chapter 2. Um, and, and, and really he could be alluding as well in terms to Psalms 22, Isaiah 53. But um, Paul is using the Old Testament scriptures to introduce Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the promise to David that his son would come. Uh, as Messiah. So God has sent a Savior. Paul's giving witness to this reality. And here's how Paul's argument goes. Uh, Jesus ministered throughout Judea. He's very famous in terms of his preaching and his signs and wonders. And those who were experts in the law and the prophets did not or could not make the connection between the Old Testament promises and Jesus' ministry. They chose not to endorse Jesus, but to condemn him. Um, the Jewish leadership in their spiritual ignorance were complicit in Jesus' crucifixion. And here we see even the use of the word tree, uh, which accords with Deuteronomy 21, 22, um, those that are hung on a tree. And then Paul refers to it in Galatians 3, 13, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. But his point is, Jesus was not cursed. He took our curses because he had no reason to be cursed. Uh, so he takes our place, a substitutionary sacrifice that allows for our, our salvation. So anyway, although he was innocent, uh, they still had him killed. A reference to Pilate, the governor, grounds all of this in real history. And so uh, for those that... Uh, uh, you know, read history, you'll see that there is documentation about Pilate in history uh, and actually um, crucifying Jesus, um, making that declaration, uh, making that happen. Uh, but you can go and see Pilate's inscription in Caesarea Maritima and realize, yes, uh, we have a very historical person here, as we do with Sergius Paulus in the last passage. So what we have here is um, God's last word. Uh, so you put Jesus to death, and God says, well, I'm going to raise him to life. 
Uh, and uh, why? To confirm that he is the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord, to vindicate him. He was not cursed. He did not die for his own sins. He died for ours. He was that, that innocent lamb that takes our place. And his resurrection appearances and the many witnesses validate his identity. So we have two more witnesses that back up this story. First of all, we got people that are alive in this time when this is being preached that could say, yeah, I saw Jesus. I saw Jesus alive. He was with us for about 40 days and then ascended into the heavens and uh, we've received the Holy Spirit and we're bringing this message to the whole world and we're willing to die for it. It is so important. It's so incredible. It's amazing. And so there's that validating witness uh, to the resurrection. Uh, but the scripture provides another witness. Now, these are people of the word. We heard a sermon this morning about the authority of God's word and hearing God through his word. Paul used the Old Testament. Paul used the Hebrew scriptures. Paul used the Psalms of David, chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 16, verse 10, to show that the crucified, risen, exalted Jesus um, is, you know, is who he is. He was revealed as the Son of God, as the Son, as David's Son. And um, he is the fulfillment of God's promises. So well, David served God and died. Jesus served God and still he's alive. Our faith is not about David, but about Jesus. Now, Peter uh, also quotes Psalm 16, verse 10, in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, uh, saying, yeah, um, he did not suffer corruption. God will not let the Holy One see corruption. And so Paul and Peter are using the same texts to bring this message forward. Uh, neither the Jews nor the Romans and Greeks expected or, or desired a physical resurrection. The, the Jews, yes, at the end of time, but not in this lifetime. And the Romans never, the Greeks never. The philosophy was that the material world, bad, spirit, good. Why would you resurrect uh, a physical being? And why would God ever become a physical being? And so that was a problem for them. But um, people had eyewitnesses, and this is exactly what the scriptures predicted. This ought to soften them up. The Jews sought salvation through keeping the law. Paul states that it's through Jesus. And what he's done, that people are set free from sins. Our next blank is forgiveness of sins is found in Jesus alone. It requires faith and repentance now, Paul uses, again, another passage from the Old Testament, this time to warn his listeners not to miss the point uh, through uh, just being trapped by tradition. He wants them to be open. Will they be open? Or don't miss out on what God is doing and has done in Jesus Christ. In verse 38, it's to you, to you, therefore, brothers, uh, let it be known. And so there's a call here to a response. That's for them, it's for us and all who read this. And this idea of doing a work, God's doing a work, a great work that's never been done before. Um, well, what is that all about? Well, this is this amazing expansion of ministry from just the nation of Israel now to the whole world. And now the Spirit, not just involved temporarily with a few people, the Spirit is available for everyone. Uh, and so the church is now growing and spreading uh, throughout the world. And the question is, and it's a challenge, will you believe this? Will you believe this? Well, what is the response? In verse 42 to 47, we see the response to the gospel. As they went out, verse 42, Acts 13, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after meeting, the synagogue broke up. 
after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, and Jewish leaders, I think, uh, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, and here's another scripture, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So the first response from the synagogue was favorable. Paul and Barnabas were invited back. Uh, they spent some time during the week uh, meeting with those that were really uh, attracted to the message. Uh, Jews and proselytes and God-fearers, Gentiles, followed him, talked to him. Uh, and I could see them gathering these new believers, encouraging these new believers. Uh, maybe they baptized some of these new believers. Uh, but things were happening. The next week, it's standing room only. Not only is the normal members of the synagogue there, but many members of the citizenship of the whole city have been have heard about this, and the words got out. They've come, and the Jews see the Jewish leaders, especially see the the crowd that Paul and Barnabas have attracted. They're filled with jealousy, and they attack Paul in his teaching. And that's your next uh, line to fill out. They attack Paul and his teaching. They slander. Literally, the word is blaspheme. And they're not blaspheming Paul. They're blaspheming because Paul's giving the word of God. So they're actually blaspheming God even though, and, and slandering Paul simultaneously. Uh, they see Paul and his friends as threats to their, to their Jewish identity, their rich traditions, uh, to Moses and the law. Their social standing in the community might be threatened by this change and, uh, that is being introduced uh, about Jesus. And uh, if, if, in their view, they would be saying, we're expressing zeal for the law of Moses. Uh, but in the Holy Spirit's view, it was like, you're being jealous. And, uh, and you're actually acting in pride and in, in insecurity. Um, you're trying to protect your power. Bar Jesus, Elamus, tried to protect his influence with Sergius Paulus. Now these Jewish leaders are, are trying to protect something as well. So Paul and Barnabas are not intimidated, but fearlessly with the Spirit's inspired gift of boldness addresses the crowd. They affirm that they followed their instructions to preach the gospel to the Jews first, but seeing as they are not interested in the message that would lead to eternal life, they will now go to those that are interested, and they will go, as has been prophesied, uh, to the Gentiles. And the Old Testament says that all the nations uh, will be blessed through the seed of Abraham. And, uh, and here we see a passage about being light uh, to the Gentiles, again, from the Old Testament. Um, and the Gentiles, in fact, uh, have one less impediment. I mean, they've got other impediments of so paganism and, and everything else that's around them in their culture, but they, do, uh, they don't have the extra rules and traditions of Judaism to hold them back from responding to this message. And so this is the turning point uh, in uh, not only the book of Acts, but world history where instead of uh, Christianity just being a subset of Judaism, it's now breaking out into non-Jewish centers and non-Jewish populations to the Gentiles and to the world. So it's very, very cool. Um, let's take a look next at uh, the response to the gospel. But may I say something about this? One of the longest sermons in the Bible, Stephen's is longer, uh, but this is obviously a shortened survey, a summary statement of the passage with the key points that the Holy Spirit wants us to be aware of. 
So anyway, uh, verses 48 to 52, we conclude. And when the Gentiles heard this, about being a light to the, uh, to the Gentiles, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited devout women of high standing and leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So here's again uh, a reaction. The Gentiles are thrilled with Paul's statement of purpose and respond with worship and celebration and faith. As many as were appointed indicates God's sovereign purposes being unfolded in the lives of Gentiles. It is God's plan to reach the world and uh, to branch out through uh, his people Israel to uh, bring everybody to become his people. They rejoice because God's offering Gentiles forgiveness of sins in response to faith in Jesus and, the, and that they're accepting. And this without the extra Jewish laws like circumcision. And so this is something that's really attractive and, 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 and they're just, they're, they're, they're drawn in. We see a revival taking place. The whole region it talks about is being impacted. So I don't know if this is weeks or months, uh, but there's a movement of the gospel. There's a movement of conversion. There's a movement of, of solidifying these believers, but there's also a counter movement of opposition. And there is a, a movement to convince leading officials, leading women, leading men in the city to oppose and ultimately to throw out uh, these ringleaders of a new illegal religion. And so they, um, they're able to do that. So they're, uh, as, a, as we can say here, um, they've gone out to the Gentiles. And then finally, the result of the leaders of the city is to drive them out of town. Well, you see this uh, uh, shaking off the dust of their feet. Jesus taught his disciples that if they weren't received in a town, to uh, do that, to shake off the dust of their feet. And uh, so this is an interesting uh, account uh, that they, they follow the, the words of Jesus. It's a prophetic sign. Um, anyway, it's ironic that persecution can help spread the gospel in church. Joy results, a fresh refilling of the Holy Spirit to carry on God's mission work. Many feel, you know, drained after ministry. And so it's, it's, it's great uh, after an expectation, expenditure of energy and, and to see great results, uh, to rem be reminded that there is a supernatural strength that can back and fill up uh, those that have um, invested themselves in mission work of any kind. So in conclusion, we wanna just be able to say that now we're reaching out to both Jews and Gentiles. And we're reaching out to average citizens, uh, uh, to, and including elites, from the poorest to the most powerful. We're seeing that in, in a Jewish audience, the scriptures are really being relied upon to bring forth the point. A lot of explicit quotes are being made, uh, which is totally appropriate. Uh, we're seeing that Jesus is the center of it all, and it all points to Jesus as the, uh, the coming one, the Messiah. Uh, and it's also the, the power of the Holy Spirit um, validates this by, by some amazing um, miracles. Uh, there is always opposition, and they persevere through it, endure with patience, and they are um, building up and instructing their new believers. So um, that's where we'll stop it for today. We're going to pick up on the rest of the first missionary journey next week. So come back and join us for Acts chapter 14. God bless you, and go in peace.